In 58 AD, the Christian church in Rome found itself deeply divided between her Jewish and Gentile members. To help guide the church towards unity, St. Paul wrote the longest of his 13 letters to God's beloved in Rome. You could argue that Paul's lengthiest letter was the most important letter ever written. Not just by Paul, by anyone, ever. The most prolific of New Testament authors, the second most influential character in the Christian tradition, an anti-Jesus zealot and Pharisee who changed course on the road to Damascus to become a primary architect of the Christian faith. He wrote a letter to the fledgling church that would help define her beliefs early on and continues to help define who we are as Jesus people today. It's a profoundly historical book written out of a deep personal understanding of and relationship with God. Romans, the most important letter ever written. Hey friends, open your Bible to Acts chapter 11 if you aren't in a place where you have access to a traditional Bible. As always, you can take your digital device and you can open the version, or it's also called the Bible app. And we've already uploaded all the notes and all of the scriptures. Wherever it is that you're watching us from, I love you. And I'm so glad, so excited, so honored that you're part of our family. The Apostle or Saint Paul, he's one of the most frequently mentioned figures in all of history. His writings, they're read by millions of people every single day. His, his name isn't only familiar to all Christians, but it's also familiar to most Jews and most Muslims. He's quoted and argued about, attacked and defended. But interestingly, little is known in this generation about what he was like as a person. Sometimes we forget that although the Bible was inspired by God, it was written by people, people with friends and neighbors, siblings and spouses, parents and personalities, likes and dislikes, hurts and habits. You know, I'd count myself as one of those people who only knew Paul as this mythical, mystical, literary figure to be studied, but not to be understood. I mean, I've been familiar with the Bible since childhood. I have a degree in biblical study, but I dug to discover who Paul was as a human as a person, as a man, I started to see him as if for the very first time. I saw his motives and goals, intentions and priorities. I saw the things that mattered to him and what he was indifferent to. I saw his attitude toward his mistakes and what he was willing to die for. And when I saw those things, y'all, he came alive. I mean, I'd read plenty of opinions over time, like, like Nietzsche, for example, called him one of the most ambitious of men whose superstition was only equaled by his cunning, a much tortured, much to be pitied man, an exceedingly unpleasant person, both to himself and to others. Frederick Farrer, chaplain to Queen Victoria, described him in this way, that he was loftily superior, disdaining mortal weaknesses above ordinary passions, a saint in cold marble. The famed artist and sculptor Basil Matthews, he portrayed him as a muscular hero, a man who any boy would idolize. But y'all, none of those images or descriptions resembled the man I was getting to know. Like the Paul that I've come to know, he's far more exciting than that. He's far more radical than anything I'd ever heard or imagined. And so I decided I wanted to bring a series of teachings on his most 
monumental literary work, the Book of Romans. And as I've written these, I've tried to make Paul and his amazing story both reachable and relevant to anyone, whether they be Protestant or Catholic, Jew or Gentile. And I clearly felt God challenged me to make these things more accessible, which is why I've been doing these Zoom calls called Ask Pastor Sean. And we're going to do that again this week. Same time, same place, 8 o'clock Tuesday night, just RSVP on our website. And I've loved those calls. They've been so interesting. They've been so engaging. They've challenged me and encouraged me. So I want to continue in this journey that we've been on with a teaching that we're actually going to cut into multiple parts. I want to share a teaching that we're calling When. Let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for your calling on our lives. Thank you for your love and your adoration towards us. Thank you that you notice us, that God, you would refer to us as your friends, that you, the first, the last, the alpha, the omega, the great I am, the king of kings and the Lord of lords would know us and would love us. So today, God, I pray that your word would become life that it would become deposited in our hearts, our minds, our spirit, and our actions, that we would become small and you would become big. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, to truly understand the totality of anyone, we need to understand the journey that brought them to the place where we encounter them. So what is it that brought Paul to the place of prominence and persuasiveness that we experience and encounter him in today? Guys, buckle in, get ready, because his journey, it is crazy. Saul, or Paul, was born in probably 1 AD in this magnificent, lush city called Tarsus, sandwiched between the Mediterranean and the mountains in Turkey, now known as the Taurus. They stood like a 12,000-foot rock fortress of canyons and cliffs, a mag magnificent, majestic backdrop, especially in the winter when the snow showed smooth on the cloudless peaks. The river Sidness, swift, narrow, and brilliantly clear, snaked through the heart of the city, flowing into an artificial harbor. It was an engineering masterpiece of the ancient world, and it was where just 40 years before Paul's birth, Cleopatra stepped ashore to meet Mark Antony, and history tells us that when she arrived, all of Tarsus marveled at her silver oars, her golden deck, and purple sails that Shakespeare said were so perfumed that the winds were lovesick with them. God, that's so dope. That sounds like the line from a Luther song. It's here in Tarsus that each spring when navigation resumed and the mountain pass thawed, slaves unloaded goods from the Orient and the city exploded with noise and smell and a prosperous bustle. Caravans set out to the north up the Roman road and crossed the mountains through the Cilician gates, a crevice chiseled through the mountain just wide enough for a wagon to pass through. It was another feat of ancient Tarsian engineering. Tarsus was a fusion of civilizations at peace under the rule of Rome, Cilicians and Hittites, Greeks and Assyrians, Persians and Macedonians who had stayed after they had come with Alexander the Great on his march to India. 
Paul's father, he was a master tent maker, a craftsman who worked with leather and silicium, a cloth woven from the hair of large, long-haired black goats that only grazed on the mountainous slopes of the Taurus. These black Tarsian tents were widely used by caravans, nomads, and armies throughout all of Syria. Paul's father, although born in Israel, he was a citizen of Tarsus and he was obviously wealthy. And we, we deduce that by the fact that 15 years prior to Paul's birth, citizenship was removed from anyone without considerable wealth or property. His father was also a citizen of Rome, which was only granted for a significant fee. Roman citizenship not only gave people local distinction, but it gave them the freedom to safely travel anywhere within the Roman Empire. It was a pass that would be necessary to Paul's mission years later. But the privileges as citizens of Tarsus and Rome were nothing to Paul's family in comparison to the high honor of being Israelites. They were God's people of promise. The school that was attached to the synagogue in Tarsus, it taught nothing but the Hebrew text of the sacred law in which Paul excelled. So in 14 AD, his father sent him to Jerusalem to attend the school of Gamaliel, the most respected teacher within all of Judaism, which would have been extremely expensive. It was an incredible investment for Paul's father. At this prestigious school, in addition to the deep study of scriptures, Gamaliel taught his students to be compassionate toward Gentiles, which also would be instrumental in Paul's calling after his conversion to Jesus and his proof that all our steps are ordered by God. For the next five or six years, Paul would sit and study at the feet of Gamaliel, and the Jewish state at that time was what you would call a theocracy, meaning that Religious and national leaders were identical. So the 71 members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, were equally judges, senators, and spiritual masters. Paul was desperate to be one of them. But before he could hope to be, he had to master a trade, since in theory, no rabbi took fees for their ministry, but instead supported themselves. And since every Jew was born into a trade, Paul returned to Tarsus, now in his early 20s, where he would work in the family tent-making business and teach in the local synagogue, and his father couldn't have been more proud. His son was the prized pupil of the most respected rabbi in all of Judaism. Soon after his 30th birthday, an expert tent-maker, Paul returned to Jerusalem as a young candidate for the Sanhedrin. And although the Bible doesn't highlight it, some scholars have insinuated that Paul may have been married at some point. Whether his wife died or whether she left him when he was converted to Jesus, we don't know. But the reason that they insinuate that he may have been married and wasn't married anymore, aside of scripture saying at one point where he says to remain unmarried as he was unmarried, the assertion is made of his potential marriage because Jews rarely remain celibate and parenthood was a qualification required of candidates for the Sanhedrin. As he strode about the temple courts, he wore the arrogance of a man whose ancestors and actions made him feel incredibly important. His blue fringed robe and the amulet strapped to a turban-like headdress displayed his pride in being a Pharisee. And he knew what was due to him respectful greetings, high precedence, and a prominent seat in the synagogue. And this is when he first encountered Stephen, who was teaching about Jesus being the risen Messiah. 
And so because of that message, Paul detested him and he dedicated himself to demolishing his argument by the time-honored method of public debate. And so the synagogue benches were filled. The elders listened intently. Paul and his supporters argued from the law that since Jesus had been hung from a tree, he must have been under God's curse. He couldn't possibly be the Messiah. Paul then attempted to dispose of the resurrection by the accepted explanations that the disciples had obviously stolen the body. But in reply, Stephen showed that Moses and the prophets, David and the Psalms, all foreshadowed how the Messiah wouldn't strut in as a conqueror, but he would allow himself to be jeered, hurt, and murdered, and that he would in fact rise from the dead. Stephen then went on to retell the story of the Passover two years before when Jesus died and had resurrected and he capped his case by quoting eyewitness evidence that Jesus had been seen alive by hundreds of people after his death. At that, the debate was over. Stephen had won. The congregation voted him the honors and some of them actually asked how to become followers of Jesus. In fact, Luke stated that none of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. Paul was embarrassed. He was enraged. But he had a weapon stronger than insult. He would twist Stephen's words to sound blasphemous and silence him forever by due process of the law. So he had Stephen arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin. While Paul stood smiling in the background, Stephen's fate was sealed. He was brutally executed while Paul held the robes of his executioners. During the rest of that summer in 31 AD, Paul embarked on the systematic suppression of Jesus' followers, a task he would joyfully fulfill for the next three years. Then in 34 AD, during a trip to Damascus on the largest of all his manhunts, Paul encounters Jesus, and in that encounter he is blinded. He is then brought to the house of a Jewish merchant named Judas, where, still blind, he prayed and fasted for three days. And he prayed and fasted until Ananias, who incidentally we never hear from again, comes to pray for him. When he prays for him, scales fall from Paul's eyes. Ananias then delivers a message telling Paul that he is supposed to preach Jesus to the Gentiles, the very people that Gamaliel had taught him to be compassionate toward. Ananias then baptizes Paul. That evening, he sets up a meeting between Paul and a group of Jesus followers, you know, the people that he'd come to capture or kill, who inexplicably accept him and share bread and wine. But an even more extraordinary incident would occur the next Sabbath at the most important of all Damascus synagogues. The elders in the congregation, they had no knowledge of Paul's conversion. They merely supposed that he had recovered, that he had regained his sight, and he was ready for the work that he'd come to do. They took their seats in the synagogue with satisfaction that the punishment would soon commence. The leader of the synagogue, he opened the floor to Paul. Still dressed in his Full Pharisaic garb, Paul read the allotted passage from the scroll of scriptures, his cadence and inflection perfect. Then he returned the scroll and he paused, surely thinking if he had seen the truth, these brothers would as well. It was in that moment that he proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah, the living Son of God, and the reaction wasn't at all what he had expected. The air left the room. The worshipers were surprised, then stunned. Then they shouted with fury, Traitor! 
Paul was taken aback. He clearly couldn't stay there. The accusations of blasphemy were imminent. What would he do? Where would he go? He certainly couldn't return to Jerusalem where an enraged high priest would ensure his disappearance either by strangulation or lifelong incarceration. So the next move was simple. In 34 AD, he fled to Arabia where he would subsequently encounter Jesus in a series of visions and dreams. And months drifted into years. And in the third year after his conversion, he was finally ready. Now lean and physically fit, his face darkened by the sun, he walked into the Arabian capital Petra and he took his earliest opportunity to preach Jesus in the local synagogue. But the response was similar to what he'd received in Damascus. The uproar was so great that it led King Aratus, who already hated the Jews, to order the arrest of this troublemaker. Paul fled Petra with the price on his head. Clearly, he was no longer safe anywhere in Arabia. Now in his mid-30s, he set out north to assume leadership of the great crusade taking place in the synagogues where Jesus was being proclaimed. Jerusalem was still barred to him, so he headed back to Damascus, where he was immediately welcomed by the believers that he'd left behind. And he took this opportunity to convert these people from simply being believers to full-fledged disciples. People who would soon come to his rescue when the Jews plotted his murder. Having no legal cause against them, the local Jewish elders couldn't kill him inside the city. But when a traveler from Petra mentioned the warrant for his arrest, their plot became clear. They bribed the local representative of King Aratus, who then gave orders to seize Paul and carry him outside the city to slit his throat. Paul caught wind of it, so in the middle of the night, his disciples took him to a family that was friendly to their cause, who, who lived in a, in a home on the city walls. They put Paul in a basket and they lowered him 10 feet to the ground outside the city. Paul decided it was now time to fulfill his ambition of making friends with the Apostle Peter. He needed to learn all he could about Jesus, and the danger of his return to Jerusalem was worth the risk. But upon his arrival into Jerusalem, he didn't immediately approach Peter. Instead, he looked for access to him through some of the local city followers of Jesus. And he's appalled when he receives the cold shoulder. But Luke would reveal the reason, saying that they were all afraid of him. They didn't believe that he had truly become a believer. I mean, some of these people had suffered horribly because of him. And though they were required to forgive him, his announced arrival was unnerving. The reports of his conversion had been followed by such a long period of silence. He might have been a spy but he was endorsed by a man who would later become his closest companion and confidant, Barnabas, a wealthy landowner from Cyprus whose name means son of encouragement. Barnabas was generous and deeply loved by the people thanks to his commanding presence and gentle manner. And he was the uncle of a young man named John Mark who would later write the Gospel of Mark and had a close relationship with the Apostle Peter. The introduction was made and in his impulsive, warm way, Peter and his wife asked Paul to stay in their home where Paul spent the next 15 days listening and learning and questioning Peter. He wanted as much as he could get of Jesus' sayings. And it was here that Peter would quote Jesus' sermons and describe his miracles firsthand. Even so, Paul wasn't a man who was happy unless he was active. So he went to the synagogues of the Greek-speaking Jews and picked up where Stephen had left off. He talked. 
He debated. And once again, he provoked dissension. This man who so desperately wanted to be used for reconciliation seemed to cause violent arguments everywhere he went. Once again, a murder plot was launched. Immediately after it leaked, Paul was hurried out of danger and he's taken to the coast. And in 37 AD, he was sent back to Tarsus. And for the next almost decade, in the best years of his life, his late 30s into his early 40s, he dropped out of history and rejoined his family in disgrace. Tension between father and son was understandably high. After all his father's investment and influence, Paul returned without his Pharisaic garb, but with a fractured family name, a ruined career, and the reputation of a blasphemer. After a few years, the tension became too much, and Paul was cast out of his hometown, and in 42 AD, he disappeared into the wild country of the Mount Taurus foothills, and while he was there, he had a vision a revelation of the Lord that was so sacred, he didn't refer to it to over 14 years. And even when he did, he described it in the third person. He said, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, again, I don't know, but God knows. And that man heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Some scholars believe this may have been the thorn in Paul's flesh, a visionary who receives a vision that he is prohibited from sharing. And he was in a dark place and a dark struggle. But then he heard a man from Syria was looking for him. And when they met, it was his old friend Barnabas who Luke says went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And Barnabas was looking for Saul because he had important news. Word had reached the apostles in Jerusalem that a large number of Gentiles had become believers of Jesus in the Syrian capital of Antioch. Barnabas was selected to investigate and he couldn't think of anyone better to help him on this mission with Paul's brilliant mind, his expertise in debate, and his compassion for the Gentiles, it all added up. Life had come full circle. Paul had been quarantined long enough. It was time to get out of the cave and back into his calling. And like some of you, I've been there. A little more than a decade ago, I found myself in a deep, dark cave. A few years prior, Pastor Sonny and I had taken a church in Detroit with good intentions, only to find out it was a wreck riddled with issues neither we nor the board knew about. Millions in debt, boxes of unpaid bills, and a building where the mortgage hadn't been paid in 19 months. We were dangerously close to having the doors chained by the sheriff's department. We spent the next few years trying to bail that church out, which led to massive burnout and Pastor Sonny and I getting separated. Add to that a slew of personal problems and baggage that I'd hid and refused to deal with, blaming on others for years, and it was all we could take. I resigned and I left the ministry. We left Detroit in shame and we came here to Green Bay for counseling. We went through a program called Life Skills where we learned how to timeline our lives and our wounds. And when we finished, 
we moved to a little town called Canyonville, Oregon, not to go into the ministry, but to run a boarding school and to hide. But then God sent me my own Barnabas, Pastor Steve Riggle, who flew into that little town, sat me down and told me I was wasting myself by not being in ministry. It was time to leave the cave and get back into the ministry that God had called me to. He asked me to join his team at Grace Church in Houston, Texas, where we would spend the next few years having our health and our hope restored. That is until a little church that was part of the same network called. Life Church in Green Bay contacted me and asked if Pastor Sonny and I would consider becoming their new pastors. And when I ran it by my pastor, Pastor Steve, again like Barnabas, he said he couldn't think of anyone better to help them with their mission. And the rest, it's history in the making. And Paul's experience and mine, it, it makes me think of you. And so I have three questions I want you to think about this week. Here's the first. What events in your life have you overlooked? You know, nothing happens that God can't redeem. Romans 8 tells us we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. What events have you overlooked? Here's the second. What relationships have you overlooked? Who do you have in your life that you haven't been leaning on? Ecclesiastes says, a person standing alone can be attacked and they can be defeated, but two, they can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. So what relationships have you overlooked? Here's the third. What calling have you overlooked? 1 Corinthians tells us every person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned them to, just as God has called them. What's God called you to? What's he doing in you in this cave? What's he doing in you in this pandemic that could be laying the groundwork for the rest of your life? Can I be your Barnabas? Can I be your son of encouragement and tell you, friend, your steps are ordered. It's time for you to get out of the cave and get into your calling. I wonder, will you do that? Will you do that right now? Will you close your eyes? You know, one of the things that I love about the journey of my life is that it is living proof that my steps were ordered. With all of the garbage that I did, with all of the mistakes that I made, with all of the failures that I was engrossed in, all of my steps led me to the only one who could rescue me. And I'm not special. I'm no different than anybody else on earth and friend, your steps are ordered too. And I believe that there are people that are watching this today, right now, people who maybe stumbled upon this, people that didn't even intend on being on this broadcast, who your lives are in disorder, your lives have been disrupted, you're literally in the middle of this disarray, you're dissatisfied with everything that's happening around you. And can I tell you, the only thing that can change that, the only thing that can rescue you is a relationship with Jesus. That's what salvation is, that your steps are ordered to him. And so the Bible says that for you to be saved, for you to be rescued from your sin, for you to be rescued from your shame and yourself, all you have to do is call on the name of the Lord, believe it in your heart, and you will be saved. And so I wonder if you're here today 
and you say, Sean, there's things in my life that, that are out of order. I want my life to be changed. I want my life to be renewed. I want my soul and my spirit to be rescued. Well, this morning we're gonna give you opportunity to do that and here's how. In, in just a few seconds, I'm, I'm gonna say a prayer and then I'm gonna pause. And when I pause, if you repeat that after me and you mean it in your heart, you will be saved. See, if you're watching this and you say, Sean, that's me, I need to be rescued, I need to be saved, I need to be set free. Would you repeat this after me? Would you say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, but I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? Will you come into my heart? Will you forgive me? Will you change me? Will you make me different? Will you make me new? Will you be my Lord? Will you be my Savior? In Jesus' name, amen. Friend, if you prayed that prayer, congratulations. Your life has just changed. You've just begun a brand new journey away from where you are to where God wants you to be, which is more like Jesus. And we would love the opportunity to walk this journey out with you. So if you would do us a favor and click that button that says you're raising your hand to receive Jesus, that's going to notify us and it's going to give us the opportunity to follow up with you. And I love you. I'm so excited for you. Welcome to the family of the Lord. But we're not done. If you would just close your eyes again, there's some of you who are watching this and you say, Sean, I'm a Jesus guy or I'm a Jesus girl. But there's some things in my life that I've been taking for granted. There's some events that I've been taking for granted, some steps that have been leading me to Jesus, some relationships that I've been taking for granted. And there are some things that God's called you to that you've been ignoring because you were too busy or too preoccupied. But now is the time. So if that's you, I want you to pray with me. So Father, today for my friends who are watching this, God, set us free from the bondage that's held us back, God. I bind an enemy that would try to speak in their spirit to tell them that they're not able and they're not worthy. But God, thank you that they're willing. God, make us all that you've called us to be. Help us not take it for granted. In Jesus' name, amen. Friend, I love you. Will you worship with us?